Good to be here, guys. My name's Tom. I'm one of the other leaders here. And if you want to grab your Bibles and turn to the wonderful book of Genesis, who likes Genesis? It's an amazing, the whole Bible's amazing, but this foundational book really does set the scene for um, the entire rest of the Bible. You, as you get near the end of the Bible, so much of it is assuming that you know these great, glorious, incredible stories that we are savoring over these few weeks. We're <clears throat> uh, week three on a, a short series we're doing looking at the subject of faith. And the Bible says some pretty huge things about faith. It says without faith it's impossible to please God. And that in fact if we are a people who are not living in faith and all of that means, we are in great danger of not being less loved by God, but not necessarily living in the purposes of God. So we've been looking at some of the, uh, the main elements of what it is to live by faith. Week one, two weeks ago, we looked at what it is to hear by faith. Last week, we then looked at what it is to walk by faith. And today, week three, we're going to be looking at what it is to see by faith. To see by faith. And what really we mean by that is that to see by faith rather than seeing with your eyes, is this simple yet profoundly central and challenging issue of believing, having faith, imagining in your heart and in your mind's eye what God has promised will happen even before it does happen. To see by faith is this apparently easy thing, this apparently simple thing of living a life where even when externally, physically, what your eyeballs are telling you is saying, uh -uh, everything's going wrong, the Christian individually and as a family are called to be a people who don't just have blind optimism. I'm not talking about that. I'm not talking just about an American kind of like, hey, it'll be all fine. You know, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a globally recognizable character of the people of God, which is whether you're old, young, rich, poor, extroverted, in, introverted, whatever. It's not what I'm talking about, personality. I'm talking about a, a God-likeness that means like Jesus, we, we see it by faith. You understand that the promises of God are primarily seen and tasted, and believed in, and lived in by faith internally before they happen externally. And sometimes even if they don't ever happen externally. Ah, that happens as well. But somehow, this quality is absolutely vital. You can, you can hear by faith, you can walk by faith, but if you don't develop this extraordinarily central internal poise of seeing primarily by faith, even when externally things may often seem against that, I, I genuinely don't believe that we can actually become who God wants us to. It's, it's huge. So that's why, you see, even I've gone on about, haven't I, week upon week about imagination. And we think of that as just something like, you know, in education terms. Oh, yeah, it's important, you know, for kids to imagine. No, no, no. This is like imagination on fire. 
It's like sanctified imagination. It's like saying, listen, when around you physically looks like it's going down the tubes, will you lean into your, the muscle of your God-ordained imagination for the joy set before him that he was imagining? He endured the reality that was not the joy. Understand? Is that you? This is a sacred topic. Can I be bold and say, this is massive. This is how you walk through a disappointing marriage. This is how you endure a life that you did not imagine it would be like. This is how you give when every fiber of your fleshly nature wants to cling and hold on. This is how you bless your enemies when every fiber of you cries out for justice and this feels unjust. How do you do that? How on earth can a human forgive? How on earth can you do that? How can you live a life which is poured out sacrificially without becoming a martyr and a pain in the bottom? How do you do that? This is, this is impossible. How, when Jesus says, hey, be perfect, because I'm perfect, you're like, thanks, Jesus. Nopressurechurch.com. You know, it's like, did I misunderstand the Greek? No, no. No, 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 no. This is where he's calling us to. Now, this is, this is, woo, this is heady stuff, right? This is, how do we do this? And I love this story of Abraham, or Abraham as he's called now, because he's so real. He's so normal, and yet he's so, in the heartbeat, extraordinary. Today, we're going to look at uh, just one more kind of couple of stories that are right next to each other. And I don't think, I don't know if I can see, think of a story in the Bible that's more, you know, kind of like a split personality. You see this crazy, like, woo, highest of high and lowest of lows. In one kind of chapter, there's these two scenes right next to each other that are deliberately there, where one moment Abraham is seeing by faith. Scene two, which we're going to get to, and he's incredibly open-handed as a result. When everything is crushing on him to self-preserve and self-protect. But what we're going to see in the first scene is a very Tom Shaw-shaped Abraham, where he doesn't see by faith. He doesn't do well. He sees very fleshly, lily, physically. He, he, he sees in a calculated, self-preserving, orphan mindseted way. So let's let these two beautiful chapters of his life just minister to us. Conviction and also phenomenal hope. And here we read from verse 10 of chapter 12. And just to say, last week we, we left in, chapter, in verse 9 and the picture you probably remember is quite, a, I think, a vivid one of this, this older couple who have left the comfort of Ur and Haran. They've given everything away. They've embraced leaving, and they've embraced arriving in all of its nuances. And we come to them again at this point. We pick up where the story left off. And, and the feel of this older couple is that their arriving has not been what they imagined. Remember we made the point that often in life, God makes these promises, and you think, great. And then the reality of a life feels somewhat different. But internally, even though externally, internally, we were celebrating last week, weren't we? The arriving of them building an altar, calling on the name of the Lord, and God appearing. It's like, listen, I'll get to the promises stuff, but first I want you as my own. 
It's so important that we are intimate before I give you anything. That's what was happening. And we were like, yeah, go on, Abe. Yes, son. That's great. He's getting it amidst this external fragility. But then we come on to the scene for today, the first scene, which I've just simply called anxious Abraham. It's almost like the straw that broke the camel's back is about to happen. He's, he's doing well amidst a lot of pressure, but now something's about to happen that it's just like he seems to kind of snap. He seems to just go, oh! Just when God wants him to live and see by faith, to imagine that even though it's tough, just possible that God will come through for him, what we're about to read is a very human, very human Abraham. And there's a couple of moments that I want to underline in this first scene. First of all, then verse 10. Already under a lot of pressure, as I've said, now, verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. There was a famine in the land. So, obviously, I don't need you to, or rather, I don't need to explain to you what a famine is. A famine, humanly, is one of the most serious things that can ever affect a people, a nation. It's happening all the time. Famine is a dramatic word. It's a very uh, provoking word that gets your attention. There's a famine in the land. God was allowing an elderly, fragile, vulnerable people now to live in a time of famine. Now, when famines come in our life, and most of us probably in this room, we've probably not literally experienced famine. Maybe you actually have. But of course, with the Bible, there's always these amazing multiplicity of application. You think, well, I've never been in a famine. Well, maybe actually as we think about this life of faith and seeing by faith and this first ingredient that comes on our story today, maybe there are famines in your life that you're not even aware of. Famine is really, in essence, a time of lack. This is a God-ordained lack in the life of Abraham and Sarah. He was stripping them down metaphorically even more. This older couple who were already up against it are holding on. God says, right, next level. This is famine. It's a season of lack. I wonder what God-ordained famines might be in your life now. Just to wonder. What is a famine? It's a time when there isn't plenty. There's a lack. There is a lack of control. Or a lack of honor. Maybe you don't feel your husband is kind to you. There's a lack it's like a famine. I just wish he would just touch me. I wish he would just say something that was sincere. I just wish my teenage kids would just <laughs> say something that's not what they so often say. I just, I just wish in my workplace, I just wish there was just a scrap of thankfulness for what I'm doing. I just wish there was some measurement with these kids or these people I'm pouring my life into. There's just this famine of thanks. There's this famine of any sense of appreciation. There's a famine in my finances, Tom. You know, there's a famine in my health. For God is stripping this down. There's a famine of friendships. People just keep moving off and church planting or doing other things. There's a famine. There's a famine of answers. There's a, there can be famines of 
of clarity. How long will I be confused about what I'm meant to do? Famine. Famine is painful, right? Oh. And what we see is, is that Abraham's just like us. What happens is this. He reacts. That's the key. He, he does anything he can to immediately get away from this God-ordained, God-orchestrated famine. Look, the, uh, the famine was severe, verse 11. Sorry, and Abe went down to Egypt, verse 10. Went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. So we see here this, this first element. Famine comes, okay? He's called to see by faith. God has promised protection, number one. He's promised provision. We've just read it last week. Protection and provision. Protection and provision. And what we see is, is God is allowing the apparent removal of provision, right? I don't feel provided for in this way. I don't feel it, God. It's just as basic as food. Is that unfair? I just, I, God, stop testing me. And so he understandably moves. And, and when we feel these two core elements of what it is to be a child of God, a son or daughter of God, which is I'm protected and I'm provided for. God's promised that to Abraham. It's the ancient glorious promise to each of us here today to be a child of God, which means when the storms come, I can hold on and see by faith, even when everything around me apparently is saying different, I need to know I am protected and I'm provided for. And in this moment, this is an amazing illustration of what it's like to feel provision gone. Perhaps you grew up in a family where provision, the lack was just a mantra, and you've like, brought it into your life. You're always expecting a lack. And God's like, well, I'm your, your father. I have all things available for you, but we live in this, this bubble, this agreement we've made somehow with the world, the flesh, the enemy. Oh, I'm believing in a lack. And that's what we see here. The provision element of being a child of God is being tested. Do you see that? And what he does is, acting as an orphan, he moves. Where are you potentially in danger of moving? You, you know, when, when, for me, if I feel control, there's a lack of control in my life, I'm in so much, I can so instinctively move to the Egypt of overplanning. <laughs> yeah? I will try and immediately get rid of that lack. I will move metaphorically to try and plan. A bit more work. Work even harder. Make sure this thing really is perfect. Maybe, you, maybe there's a lack of approval in your life and you start to move to the Egypt of fishing for compliments. So in whatever way that might look. Flattery. Or just letting people know how tough your life is. There's lots of different ways we work, right? Maybe it's just me. Or maybe there's a there's a famine, a God-ordained famine of power, and you actually, you move quickly to the land of flattery, or the, not the land of flattery, the land of exaggeration. You know? How are things going? Yeah, great. Yeah. Pretty good. Because you don't want to be humbled. Your wife knows, your friends know, your parents know, your children know, but you're like, I'm a-okay. And you've just moved, and you're, you're just living as an orphan. You, you, you see, you, there's a movement. Movement when God says, no, 
Learn the lesson, my friend. Learn it. I'm bringing the lack for a reason. It's going to expose something in you. And, and Abraham, it's like he doesn't see it. He just moves. It's what I do so quickly. My instinctive 40-year-old muscle of movement. I'm going, to, I'm going to remove. I hate this sense of famine. I hate this sense of lack. I hate pain generally, but that type of pain. It can lead us to movement. But then secondarily, what we see is, is that this first, I think, lack of faith move, it's like he starts to not see by faith. It immediately leads to a second symptom. This wrong movement leads to a classic telltale sign when we're living in anxiety and we're not seeing by faith is of using people. That's what he starts to do next. Look with me. Verse 11, as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, now think about this. This is interesting. This is a kind of... um, a soundtrack, or what's the word? Uh, it's like he's, he's just externally now starting to kind of vomit this worst-case scenario, which is what we do when we're an orphan. When we feel alone, we don't feel protected, and we don't feel provided for, although God's promised it, he, he's moving now from fear of lack of provision. Now he's, he's fearful about his protection. Look, I know what a beautiful woman you are, right? And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. And then they will kill me. Slow down, Abraham. I mean, <laughs> this is, he's going into panic mode, okay? There's no particular reason, historically, all the commentators agree, why he would imagine this. My wife's really good looking, so I'm going to get killed. You see, but we have our versions of this, don't we? When we're in that mindset, we do. Anxiety just grips us and we're trying to control and we're trying to not just find provision, but we're now starting to protect. And so he hatches this awful plan. Then they will kill me, but let you live. Say you are my sister. No. No, Abraham. No, 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 no. Remember the promises? Just, they just happened. These massive promises that you built your life on. But I can so identify with. He's almost like a child. You know, this older man, but he's, he's not in stature at this point. Say you are my sister, so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. And when Abraham came to Egypt, the, the Egyptians saw that she was a beautiful, very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace. And, she, and he treated Abraham well, for her sake. And Abraham acquired sheep, cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants and maidservants and camels. So you see this pretty stomach churning picture, right? You get, I don't have to spell out exactly what's happening. You see this wife with no apparent discussion is just offered up. Vulnerable, an older, vulnerable lady. Far away from home. Far away from anything that would have made her feel safe. She's already been living through a famine. And now her husband, the one person surely I can rely on in this moment of pressure, he says to her, and he he doesn't think it aloud and says, oh, I'm so, you know, he actually goes through with it. He offers her up. And it's clear that whether she likes it or not, thus begins a chapter in her life 
that would probably be the darkest time of her life. The king starts to have his way with her, probably night upon night. And there's Abraham with wealth sitting there. Camels, men, servants. I mean, it's, it's deliberately, I mean, I'm not going to dwell on it, but it's deliberately vivid. It's deliberately like, and, I, and you may not have ever done that, but listen, perhaps you're like me. The fundamental principle is that he's using her. He's not loving her. He's using her. This is what happens when God is calling us to believe him. See by faith. Believe in my protection. Believe in my provision. When we start to try and take matters into our own hands and we move away from the place that God wants us to be, we, we inevitably start to use other people. We do it. It's as old as Adam and Eve. People that we're meant to cherish and love. Particularly those like our spouses or our kids or those, but, but, but generally. And we slip into this really sad condition of this world of using people. This world is filled with this. This, this is the narrative, whether people know it or not. There's a famine. I feel a lack. And therefore, I'm escaping that and I'm using people that. Just go, just, that's, that's, that is the narrative of the world that we live in. There's a lack and therefore we try and solve it by moving, by doing, by taking control. And of course, where people get used to protect. I've seen it in my life so many times. As a leader, man, the gift of leadership is scary. It's so scary. A God-ordained ability to influence people can get polluted in a heartbeat. And, and, and we can just be deluded, thinking that we're loving people when actually we're using. Let me ask you this. With this first scene kind of in our, in our mind's eye, are there any famines in your life today? Are there any areas that God has allowed there to be lack? And if so... Are there any hallmarks in your life of this fleshly trying to move away and as a kind of an overflow, dear loved ones around you are, are getting caught up in it? When you feel a lack, when you feel like an orphan, this is what happens. The lie you agree with is you've got to look after yourself. No one else is going to do it. It's what orphans believe, isn't it? This is an Abrahamic moment where he is living as an orphan. You can be 60, 70, 80 years old. You can have a business. You can, be, you, can, you can have everything that the world thinks should make you a secure, settled, loving father, mothering type. And you can be living subtly exactly in the same place. Controlling and using. So Lord, help us today. Lord, help us as we continue. Lord, Lord help us to see with courage if there's any scrap of this in our hearts, even now, just take a moment. Let this vivid picture of, of this situation just, just do its work in your heart. Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus. And so we come on then to this second scene. Now, if you're anything like me, when you, when you feel this first scene, you, um, you know, if I, I could easily stop the sermon there and be like, feeling a bit convicted? Yes, good. Now, get out there and try hard. Come on. And sadly, that happens. In fact, 
I would say that virtually every religion in the world is a variation on that. It's, isn't God perfect, and aren't you rubbish, and get out there and try hard. And just maybe, if you pull up your bootstraps and you work really hard, you might, just might, possibly be good enough, however that's defined, to actually be someone who can reach nirvana or have a reincarnation that's in a better place or whatever it might be. It's the lie that we buy into. And actually, it's the, in one level, it's just the natural consequence if we were to read this. But what we see in verse 17 actually blows my little brain. Look with me in verse 17. With that picture in your mind of this very, very uninspiring older man you know, who we would all want to be, this godly older guy, right? You want him to be this like beautiful, Christ-like, fathering type who you just go to, yes, Ab- I'd love to have met Abraham. He just oozes godliness. This picture right now is of a man who is anything but that, okay? He is sitting, enjoying his wealth as his wife is neglected and effectively given over to another man. That's the picture in your mind. How does God react if I, to do it, if you didn't have verse 17 in your Bible, I wonder what we'd say. How does God react? Well, I'd say, well, God, well, let's read. I won't even do the Tom Shaw version. Let's see what God says. Verse 17, but the Lord, furious, after all the promises that God had given to Abraham, the chosen one, the blessed one, furious with how he treated his wife, inflicted serious diseases on Abraham to teach him a lesson and to show him the error of his way so that he would try hard and become better. Oh no, wait a minute. No. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on who? On Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. And so, understandably, Pharaoh summoned Abraham. Uh, what have you done to me? He said, covered in serious diseases. I don't even know what they were. They sound terrifying. Why didn't you tell me she was your sister? Why did you say, sorry, (laughs) why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abraham to his men, and they sent him on his way, and his wife and everything he had. Now, just taste the extraordinary grace of these few verses as best you can. It's, preaching is such an overwhelming responsibility. You are trying with your limited gifts to try and express the magnitude of the grace of the God of the universe. It is such an overwhelming thing. This blows my brain that you see, in essence, this really unappealing man, Abraham, and this actually incredibly, apparently godly king, this pagan king. You know, pharaohs in these days, they didn't have to ask people's permission for what they would do. They didn't have to say, hey, look, you know, um, could I have your wife? They just took people's wives. They just had people killed. They had like divine-like power. And yet we see this extraordinary godliness this extraordinary moral concern. Yes, of course, there's the curses which are helping him 
to, to, to get to the bottom of what's going on. But nevertheless, the whole point of this is this incredible, surprising, glorious, unexpected picture of the man who's been blessed by God, this godly man, but who actually in this, in this moment is anything but godly, right here with this Pharaoh, this, this, this man, this pagan, this non-Christian, basically challenging the Christian, saying to him, um, have you ever had that? When like a non-Christian tells you actually what, what you should be saying anyway? He's kind of like, I hate to point this out, but you're lying to me. As a result of this lie, we're suffering. Why have you done this to us? There is this extraordinary picture of grace. Of grace. Of grace. You see, when you see yourself in Abraham as this self-protecting, self-providing, orphan-mindsetted man who is using his wife and lying to a good man. And yet, in that very moment when you think he would be judged for it, and he should be judged for it, this really unappealing man is treated with extraordinary grace and mercy. And this actually really good man is cursed as a result. Does that remind you of anything? Does it not remind you of the cross of Jesus Christ, where the ultimate good man was ultimately cursed for the sake of the unappealing evil people that you and I are? It's us. You should look at that picture of Abraham and go, that feels wrong. That doesn't feel just. Why would God possibly do that to a good man for the sake of Abraham? I hope you're feeling that. I hope you're feeling like, this is horrible. He deserves to be bonked around the head. He deserves to be judged. He needs to be shaken. And a, a strong person from here, slam him up against the wall and say, protect your wife. Look after your family. Don't do what you're doing, you coward of a man. That's what should happen, right? Right? That's what should happen. And yet God, in his grace and in his mercy, because he is loyal to his promises and he is loyal to people who do not deserve it, to evil people like you and me. He relentlessly blesses because he's promised to do it. He is a God of his word. He is faithful when we are faithless. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. It should mean that we go, this gospel is, is not logical. It's otherworldly. It's crazy. It's scandalous. It should make you think, this doesn't make sense. The wonder of the gospel is seen here. In the wonder of God blessing an evil man, and pouring out something on this man. That is a picture of the gospel, that when Jesus went to the cross, he was the best man, the most perfect man, the one man who never sinned, bore the full weight of, of the curse that all of us deserved, that Abraham deserved. This is a foretaste of it. Now, this is glorious. This is, when this sinks into your soul, it's like God said to him, you're my boy, and I'm with you whatever. Even when you muck up, when you screw up, when you're at the lowest point of your life and everyone's going to read about it for like millions of times over. I'm still with you. Blood is thicker than water. I'm with you. Your performance does not in any way, shape or form change our identity. Hallelujah. You, it doesn't. It's given to you as a gift, as a scandalous gift. You should be on your face going, this is just wrong to the pit of my stomach. This is just wrong. That's why Jesus loved it when he sees a when he sees a, a tax collector who's like, "Woe is me!" And the Pharisaical nature that we just we get just get sucked into, we get drawn into it. 
It's, it's anti-Christ. It's anti-gospel. It's demonic. It's not of God. We don't experience grace and then we become good moral people. We, we grow in holiness. Grace teaches us to say no. No to ungodliness. This isn't a greasy grace thing I'm teaching. What I'm saying is, you start by grace, you live by grace, you end by grace. The whole of the gospel, the whole of it is, 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 is about a God who would do this for us. If you do not know Jesus, I have got great news for you today. Great news. This book is filled with failures from cover to cover. Every single one of them. Every single one, apart from Jesus. Every single person in this book is a mix at best. Let's be positive. It's got some great things. But don't, don't have any mistake about this. Don't, you know, don't believe the common quasi-truth that this world is a good place. You know, you just need a bit of a tweak. Know a few truths about the Christian faith. That is not the gospel. The gospel is evil people like Tom Shaw. That's what the Bible says. It doesn't say it's pretty good. Because me, you who are evil, if you know who are evil, know how to give good gifts, how much more does your Father in heaven? You're like, wait a minute, evil? We're meant to see ourselves in this. Till the day you die. I think one of the greatest signs of godliness is an older man or woman who is more aware of their sin as they get older and yet more aware of how unbelievably loved they are. It's both. It's I'm crushed by how unworthy I am. Yeah, you are. His grace is wider. His grace is bigger. His grace is more glorious. You can't outrun it. You can't jump out of it. It's like, come on, Abraham, do something that's absolutely about as shocking as you can do. Boom, there it is. What else can he done that's worse? Come on, shout it out. Don't do that, really. In your heart, do that. I mean, taste this. It's like his promises, he's locked into them. It's like he realizes God's really serious. When God said to him, hey, do you know what? If you actually obey me, you know, and you just trust me, it's going to be pretty amazing. Can you imagine when he left, when he left the palace? Can you imagine the conversation with Sarah? I mean, it was going to be incredibly awkward at one level. Clearly, I bet he was really odd to be around because he would have just massively failed her. But he was probably high as a kite. I'm, I'm speculating. I'm using my imagination. It's becoming real to me. Do you see? He must have just felt absolutely, I am so sorry. But I'm so excited because God's grace covers me. Now, that's the key. This is the key of today because we're about to finish with just a quick glimpse at what happens to him. Rocket-fueled Abraham. When he lives with a taste of grace, with a smell of grace, with, with the feel of grace in his heart, not some little thing up here, but it's in his body, it's in his limbs, it's in his bones. He's seen it. He would remember the curse on Pharaoh's face and thought, whoa, this is real. You will protect me. You will provide for me. And think about the fact that he even left with all the stuff. Little note there. Isn't that great? The picture of the gospel. You don't just get forgiven. You leave with the stuff. You enter into this life with every spiritual blessing. Everything. It's given. Boom. Straight away. Your bank account goes. Pfft. Have you checked the bank account, Josie? Have you seen what's in there? That's, what, that's, that's God's grace towards us. Have you checked your bank account today? Not literally. I mean, metaphorically. Do you know what it is to be a child of God? A royal priesthood. 
And, and, and I love it. God calls Abraham a friend of God. He's a friend. He's my friend. Says that. God knew he was going to do it. And he's like, he's my friend. And this is what we see. It's obvious that Abraham has started to taste this. It's like the lights have gone on. This isn't some conditional deal. This is the, the scandalous God of the gospel is committed to blessing me even though I do not deserve it in protection and provision. Protection and provision. I am not an orphan. I am an heir. I am an heir. I am unstoppable by the power of God. You can take everything away. You can take everything away. And when God is at work in a man or a woman, a miracle happens. It's not logical. You can't work it up. It's not willpower. It is totally supernatural. It is God's incredible provision in our darkest hour. And this is what we see here. He starts to taste. Wait a minute. It's like he's seeing. And so now, look at the difference here. The second scene. When actually there's going to be even more pressure for him to not to see by faith, but to see with his eyes. So verse 1, so Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev. So he's going back now to the land which God had told him to go in. With his wife and everything he had, and Lot went with him. Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. We know how that happened now because of a very, very unrighteous thing in his life. But God graciously lets him keep it. From the Negev, he went up from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier. So he's gone back, back to where he's from and where he'd first built an altar. And there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. And I bet you that was a glorious rocket fuel prayer time. If you've just tasted the grace that he has tasted, if you've just sensed the scandal of the gospel, when was the last time in your life when was the last time? Is it a daily occurrence? You know, God, God does this. He kind of tempts us in a good way. He says, come on, is this part of your life? Are you someone who, if I could creep into your prayer time, like, oh, that woman, she's on fire with sensing the grace of God, sensing it from cover to cover. Is that you? It's, 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 come on, if it's not, he's longing to draw you back again. He wants you to go into glory on fire for him. The only engine, the only engine that can take you through all the pain of this life is hour by hour, day by day, living and tasting and breathing the grace of God to undeserving people. It's the only thing. It's the only thing. It's the only thing that will change you. It's the only thing that will mold you. It's the only thing that will make you like God, like Jesus, which is your calling. That's amazing. Now Lot, here we go, was moving about with Abraham. He also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land could not support them while they stayed together, for their possessions were so great that they were not able to stay together. And quarreling arose between Abraham's herdsmen and the herdsmen of Lot. And the Canaanites and the Perizzites were also living in the land at that time. So Abraham said to Lot, if it was me, I would have said, Lot, my wonderful nephew, the promises, as you will know, were to me for this land you came with me, you've had a good time, but we've now got the Canaanites here and the Perizzites, whoever they are, and we don't need the Lottites as well. I'm so sorry, nephew, you've got, you've got to leave. That's what the first Abraham would have done, the using Abraham. That's what you and I would do, right? That's the human, 
Human nature, surely you would agree. God has promised him. He could, he could even give us the spiritual region. Because God promises to him, I'm so sorry, Lot, but God has told me that this is my land, and you, you know, you're here, but you're, you're taking up the land, so you've, you've got to go. But what do we see? What do we see? So Abraham said to Lot, let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we are brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. And here we go. Here it is. I love this. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. I mean, who is this Abraham? Like five moments ago, he was this somewhat despicable character that we do not want to be like. And suddenly he's this like beaming, chillaxed, super kind guy who's even under greater pressure because he had everything else he had before, but now in this moment of pressure where he could feel so much like an orphan, everything's just here to take it away. He's just, he's just giving. He's just, he's like Christ. He's becoming like God. Do you see it? The redemption of this story is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's, it's a fragrance in a world that grabs in a world that takes, in a world that protects and delineates and builds walls and does stuff. <gasps> Must have mentioned that. In a world that does this, he just opens it up. It's like, it's almost like he has tasted intimacy with the Lord through God's grace to him. When he saw God doing what he did to Pharaoh, he must have just been absolutely undone. He's tasted grace. He's tasted the kindness of God. Now, this is the key. When you taste the grace of the Lord, you suddenly don't even need the land. Isn't that true? Isn't it true, friends? Give glory to God when you have tasted afresh the kindness, the scandal has your personal version of what happened to Abraham. When that's happened in your life, when you have tasted afresh the reality and the nearness of your Jesus, isn't it true that the things that seem so important, the land, which is a good, fine thing, don't you find that you're just, you don't need that car anymore? It's just, it's just a car. I don't need my kids to be brilliant all the time. I want them to be, but I don't, I don't need that. You know, I don't need my husband to be absolutely perfect and just an amazingly understanding man. All the time. I'd love that, but there's, I'm, I'm now with the Lord. I'm now with him. I'm living in grace. This isn't just a moment. I'm living by li rivers of living water are flowing. That's his promise. They've been poured out. I can actually call upon the name of the Lord moment by moment. And so what happens is this happens. You become more and more like Jesus. More and more able to say, you want to go that way? Cool, grab it. I'll go over here. I don't mind. Now, listen. That is, that is how the church is, of Jesus is meant, to be, is meant to be. We're meant to be like that, friends. We, when you have a culture like that, you don't have to micromanage everyone to be good Christians. When people are, ah, this is amazing. His grace is so real to me. Oh, friends, I hope, this is, I hope your heart is burning. Because when your heart's burning, you don't need to be micromanaged into good Christian behavior. You just see it. She's so open-handed. She's never jealous. She's not grabbing when her friends are praised or her friend has a great relationship. 
She's such a, there's something otherworldly in them. They're just so open-handed, so relaxed, so generous. That's, just, that's how you love your enemies. Think about that. That sounds offensive if you've got enemies, to, to love them tangibly. It's only possible if you taste grace. If you're living with your, your hourly version of, Lord, <laughs> Lord, I can't do this, but you are rewarding a man who does not deserve it. Oh, I love it. I, I just feel like my guess is that this whole deal of the land and the promises, I'm sure it was still precious to this man, but he's tasted the Lord. You understand? He's tasted the Lord. Let me ask you this. What, what are you more after? Do you want the land? It's a big thing. It's the ultimate question. You see, when we have Christ, we have everything. We have everything. All the treasures are in Christ. That's the truth. And everything else is just icing on the cake. That's actually, substantially, that is the truth of this word. That, that God can bear the weight of your expectations. Try him. Try him. He is the cornerstone. We can go, ooh, ooh, yeah, wait a minute, yes, yeah, thick, we, we, yes. I, don't, I thought I needed those things. I thought I needed the land, but I'm not so sure. I like the land. I love the good things of life. I'm not against them. But something's shifting. Friends, that's, that's your destiny. Come on, you're bulletproof in God when that is in you. I'm not saying it in some un, un, unreal way as if you just glide through life not needing anything. I'm not saying that. There's a fight. You fight the good fight of faith, okay? This is not an idealistic thing that just happens. You have to fight the good fight of faith. But faith is saying, God, I don't want to grasp. I don't want to be anxious. I don't want to self-protect. I don't want to move. In my, I want to stay in the necessary place of famine, if that's what you're saying, and say, I will believe that internally you promised to prepare a table for me amidst my enemies. Whoa! Can you? Ah, I can do that. I can detach from needing to have this glittering image of Tom Shaw. I can just be so average and have an average life and yet internally be a king. That's the kingdom. The kingdom comes. The kingdom needs to come in many hearts today. You've replaced it. You're living in the land. God's saying, come on, my child. Come back to me. I'm all you need. I want to give you the land. I want to give you the good gifts. Seek first the kingdom and all these things will be. Come on, people. This is everything. This is life or death. Seriously, work with me. Take hold of what I'm saying in faith. Don't just sit there and go, well, that's an interesting thought, theological perspective. This is truth. Grab it. Your wife needs you to get this. Your kids need you to get it. Because you're, if you're living and they're your land, let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Don't live your life grabbing. Don't live your life as an orphan. Receive the fresh grace of God that you are a chosen people, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, loaded spiritually, blessed. I want this for my life. I want you to ask Josie, is this true about Tom? And I'm certainly not saying it is, but I think it's coming. I would, I would say that I think it's coming. I'm noticing how I'm reacting when God brings a famine of comfort. You know, we all have our comfortable thing. And, and ooh, I, no, no, stay. God, you've got to do something here. Come on, I'm trusting. I'm not going to do well unless you're here. Ah, oh, there he is. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Dependent in this place of famine. Famine of control. Whoa. Don't plan to trust. Trust. 
Whew, trust and obey. There's no other. No, it's true. And what happens is, and I'll finish with this, is that as we do this, we, we just, it's a feel. You know what I'm saying? It's, you feel different to those around you. You, f- you can feel it. You become a better listener rather than trying to grab through saying what you want to say. You become more generous. You don't have to be taught about giving your money away. Please give a bit more. You just, you, ah, of course. I've got everything. I've got the king. It's his. It's all his. You just become more able to not need the things that you need. You see by faith. And I love this because it says about Abraham, he didn't even get everything that God promised. But seeing by faith is not even primarily seeing the land and imagining that it's going to definitely happen. It's actually seeing him by faith. It's seeing him, imagining. So why Hebrews is saying faith is being sure of what we hope for. That hope is not some abstract thing. It's him. It's a hope in him that you're going to meet him, a good, glorious king, very, very soon. Woo! When that hope, capital H, floods your soul, you, you can start to laugh a bit more at your vain attempts to be El Supremo. I remember the comedy of when I was called to lead the eldership in Canterbury. The comedy of, you know, the, the team leader was going to plant a church, which was brilliant. The two other guys, one was a businessman, one was a doctor, and I was the ex-hippie, 10 years younger than both. could hardly organize my own life. And they were like, we think you should lead the team. And I was like, what? And... Uh, and then in one week, I had three like prophetic, quite incredible words that came, which basically God said, you are going to lead this team. And it shifted in my heart from could I do it to I must do it. And I remember this faith came. It was, I could see it by faith. It was like, this is comical, humanly. I get it. I get it. I'm the first. And I remember saying to the church, it just popped out of my mouth as I took over the team. I said, if you... <laughs> If you choose to leave this church now, I won't blame you. I'm not sure I'd follow me either. However, I will say this. I know I'm called by God to do it. And I love God with a burning passion. And I love you. But that's all I've got. I haven't got anything else. Now listen, there's a feel. There's an open-handedness when you're living in that place. You don't have to be the best mom. You don't have to be the best leader. You don't have to be the best preacher or the best evangelist or the best father or whatever your equivalent is. You can say, Lord... Lord, I'm living more and more, just needing the Lord. And whatever my land is, I ask for it. But I can just, you know, I want that for you this week. I want you to be, I, I really yearning that for all of us. It's, it's our inheritance. So let's stand to our feet. Stand to our feet. Come on, guys. Two minutes. We are going to break bread. We're going to drink the juice. Let's not go into autopilot when I say those words. This is the most genius gift that Jesus gave us because it brings us back to him. It brings us back to that truly godly man who was truly cursed so that we scandalously could be treated as righteous. Now, friends, if you feel like numb when I say that, don't be condemned, but be provoked. As you come literally to the table in a moment, Maybe, Monica, you could just, just lead us in a song as we do these things together. I want to invite you, even though you might just want to close your eyes, just these last few moments. For some of you here today, you know, you know you've lived actually as a bit of an orphan. That anxiety of self-protection and self-provision has actually unconsciously just 
kind of been where you've lived. And, and the Lord's saying, right now, quickly, lay it on the floor. Lay it at the king's, the king's, on the floor of the king's palace in your heart. Look up. Look up to, to who I am. Right now. He's just saying today, I want you to receive the gift of sight. Amazing. It's amazing. He wants to give you the gift of sight. Jesus repeatedly said, be careful how you listen. He said, I want you to see the kingdom. Right now, with your eyes actually closed, just allow the Spirit of God. I believe there's specific situations in your life where you are tempted right now to try and just cling and hold and to look after number one. And in this atmosphere of faith, I believe for many of us, the Lord is saying, just right now, let it go. Open up your soul and allow that feeling of vulnerability, like Abraham would have felt. This is my land. I'm just giving it away. What's happening? This is my land. I've given up everything for it. I'm not going to give it to Lot. Right now. Go on. Whatever that is, might be, a, might be for some of you, it's your reputation. Oh, it's under, it's under attack. It's unjust. And God's saying, listen, that's your land. You have me. I know it's precious to you. I know it's precious to you that people think well of you. I get it. But vindication may come or it may not. And right now, just say, Lord, I'm asking you for a, just a fresh flood of the grace of God that I would say, Lord, whom do I have in heaven but you? It's all I need. Whew. Some of you now, you've got expectations over your kids. And it's just, they're not wrong, but there's just a tightness. And they're kind of, they're your land. And the Lord's saying, come on, as you come to the table, just feast on me more than anything else. Feast on me. See by faith. Put me to the good test and see that I will come through for you. For some of you, it's finance, it's relationships, it's performance right now. Just lay it down. <laughs> and taste that grace. I pray for just a room filled like little chicks in a nest, just gobbling down the good food of your grace. I pray for real change in behavior, not through trying to be open-handed, but because we taste the goodness of the Lord. Thank you, Lord. We're in your hands. You will not let our foot slip. You will not test us beyond that which we can bear. We hold you to that. Good Father, come and just fill us with a taste of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.